today in Nehemiah chapter 9, we're going to reflect on over 1,500 years of Israelite history. In fact, my sermon this morning addresses the whole of human history. It looks at the cycle or the structure of human history. We're going to gaze this morning at the God of creation and the one who preserves creation. We're going to look at the God of power and mercy and steadfast love. We're going to examine ourselves as well, looking for stubbornness and sinfulness within our own hearts. And I'll say this bit quietly, don't panic too much. One of my points this morning has 19 sub-points. How exciting is that? <laughs> you know, it's good to, good, to, good to laugh at that. I promise it won't be so bad. So the reason I tell you all of that is because this is an ambitious, this is amb- an ambitious sermon, I'll say that. But I believe that God is going to speak to us powerfully and wonderfully this morning. And so I know Jason's already prayed, but I want to pray again that the Lord would use this time for him to just glorify himself and to speak to us and to give us all endurance to persevere through 19 subpoints in point one. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you. We love your word. We love to worship you. And we know that you have given us your word in the Bible. You have spoken to us. You have revealed yourself to us. And I pray now that this would be a moment where you are glorified, you are lifted high, where we experience your presence in our hearts, where we are convicted of sin, where we are encouraged, Lord. I just pray that you would use this time for whatever you would do, Lord God. Come Holy Spirit, move Holy Spirit in our midst. May the name of Christ be lifted high. May God be glorified. I pray this is a significant moment. In Jesus' name, amen. So why don't you turn to uh, Nehemiah chapter 9. Last week we read Nehemiah chapter 8 where there's a revival in the city of Jerusalem. There's a moment where the whole city have a hunger for God's word. They find their joy in God once more and they start to obey God's word. It's this amazing city-wide movement of faith in God. Now this week the revival continues as Nehemiah stands in the presence of the city and retells the whole of Israelite history to the people who are gathered. So let's read the word of God together. Let's honour the word. Let's, um, let's enjoy this moment as we read Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 38. And it is on the screen. Thank you so much, guys. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Barnai, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani and Shenani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani... Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Patahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord. You alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth 
and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring, the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths, as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night, to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them, uh, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way that they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. For forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples, and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon king of Heshbon, and the land of Og king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the people of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of the houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness." Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. 
But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments. But they sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. For many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through the prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully, and and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom, enjoying your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave us to our fathers to enjoy its fruit. And its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites and our priests. I wonder whether you noticed as I read that passage of scripture, whether you notice that the Israelite history, as told by the Levites on this day in Jerusalem, follows a repeating pattern and a repeating structure. Firstly, God is faithful and good. He does what is right towards the Israelites. He loves them. He cares for them. He looks after them. He gives them all that they need. But then, secondly, the humans are stubborn and disobedient. They reject God's commandments. They fall away. They disobey his rules. So firstly, God is faithful. Then humans are sinful and disobedient. So how is God going to respond? Well, thirdly in the structure, God is gracious and merciful to the people of Israel over and over again. And you, as hopefully you saw that in the story of the Israelites, this pattern repeated. God is faithful and good. Humans are sinful and rebellious. God is gracious and merciful and forgives them their sin over and over and over and over and over and over again. If you read the Old Testament, this is the story of Israel. God is faithful. Humans are sinful and disobedient. God is gracious and merciful. And what I want to argue this morning is that that is not just the pattern of Israelite history. That is the pattern of all human history. God provides, God creates, God sustains, God gives good gifts. Humans ignore God, disobey him, rebel against him. And yet God offers a way of mercy to all who would believe in Christ. This is the story of Israelite history. This is the story of all human history. This is the story of your individual life as well. God has been good to you. God has been faithful to you. 
And yet all of us have sinned against him, rebelled against him, turned away from him, ignored him. And yet God, in his grace and his mercy, provides a way of forgiveness. So firstly this morning then, in verses 6 to 15, let's observe God's faithfulness to the the Israelites as told in Nehemiah chapter 9. Let's observe all that God does for his people. And the way we're going to do that is by looking at the verbs in verses 6 to 15. Did you notice that in verses 6 to 15, God is active. It's God who does things. In fact, I believe that there are 19 verbs in those verses that we're going to look at. All that God does for his people. So firstly, in verse 6, the Lord has made, or the Lord creates. And what does the Lord create? He creates heaven, by which um, Nehemiah means the sky. He creates the heaven of heavens by which Nehemiah means the place where God dwells. That's the place where God's throne is, where he reigns forever. And he doesn't just create the heaven of heavens, he also creates the whole host of the heaven of of heavens, the angels who worship the Lord in heaven. He doesn't just create the heavens, but he also creates the earth. And he creates all that is on the earth, every animal, every plant, every human being created by God, according to Nehemiah 9, verse 6. And he creates the sea and all that is in the sea. And so this great passage describing the history of Israel, the history of the world, begins with God creating all things in heaven and on the earth and in the sea. But God, secondly, doesn't just create, he also preserves in verse 6. He makes us, and he made every single one of us, but he also keeps us alive. Along with everything else in the universe, God preserves what he has created. It says in Hebrews that Christ, by word of his power, sustains the entire universe. So God creates, and then he preserves. Sometimes as As Christians, we forget about God's preservation in our lives, that he is watching over us, that he has guided us up until this point and provided us the things that we need to stay alive, food and shelter and and all the things we need. It's God's preservation that has brought us to this place here and now. The Lord makes, the Lord preserves. The Lord, in verse 7, also chooses. Out of all of creation, out of everything that the Lord has made in heaven and on earth and in the sea, The Lord chooses one man, a man called Abraham. And through Abraham, God was going to build a nation to be his people. He gives him a new name, calls him Abraham, because he's going to be the father of a a people, the father of the nation of Israel. So the Lord chooses. The Lord brings Abraham out of his former nation, and he gives him this new name, Abraham. By the way, that's exactly how God treats Christians as well. He chooses them, he brings them out, in a sense, out from all the rest of creation. He separates them and he gives them a new name, a new identity. He calls us sons and daughters of God. So God has chosen you, God has brought you out, and God has given you a new identity and a new name if you're a Christian this morning. In verse 8, the Lord knows hearts. He finds Abraham's heart to be a faithful heart. And also in verse 8, 
the Lord makes a covenant, a promise. God doesn't need to make promises to human beings, does he? He's God. He created everything. He is all-powerful and almighty. He need not make promises to humanity, but in his love, in his compassion, he says to humans, this is how I'm going to act. This is a covenant. This A covenant is a promise between God and man. And so God makes a covenant. He makes a promise. He is one who speaks to humans, reveals his plans, reveals his promises. And not only does he make a covenant in verse 8, but it says at the end of verse 8, he keeps his promises. He kept that promise to the man Abraham, and he keeps all his promises. His word is iron. His word never fails. Observe the faithfulness and the goodness of God to Abraham. He chooses him. He brings him out. He gives him a new name. He makes him a promise of a promised land in which his people will dwell. And he keeps his promises. He does not fail, but his word is true. In verse 9, see that God is not a distant God, but he is a close God. He sees the affliction of his people in Egypt. He sees them in their sorrow and their suffering. And he doesn't just see their affliction in verse 9, he also hears their cries for help. Isn't it glorious to know that we have a God who sees affliction and who hears us when we cry to him for help? He is a faithful, he is a good God, he loves his people. He sees and he hears and in verse 10 he responds to these cries for help. He performs signs and wonders against the nation of Egypt to rescue them out of slavery. I mean, just to embellish this story just for a bit, God brought his people into Egypt in order to feed them when there was a famine. So he he sent um, Joseph ahead of his brothers into Egypt and gave Joseph pictures and visions and interpretations of other people's dreams in order that he might feed not only the nation of Egypt, but also his brothers who followed him into Egypt. And then the nation of Israel well looked after in the nation of Egypt. But then a pharaoh rises up and opposes God's people. He tries to kill the firstborn children in the Jewish nation. And so God, in his faithfulness, sees their affliction, hears their cries for help, and brings Moses to rescue them out of the nation of Egypt. Do you see, God has always been faithful to the people of Israel. He is always faithful and good to his people. In verse 11, God divides the seas. Observe the power of our God so that the Israelites walk through the Red Sea on dry land. There's a wall of sea on their right-hand side. There's a wall of sea on their left-hand side. But they walk through on dry land to the other side. And then when the Egyptian army follow them, once they've reached the other side, the waves crash down onto the Egyptian army. In other words, God rescues his people but defeats his enemies. It says of the Egyptians, they sink, they're plunged into the depths like a stone in water. God rescues his people, but defeats and destroys his enemies. In the wilderness, God shows his faithfulness and his goodness by leading his people. Day and night, there's a pillar of a cloud and pillar of fire and God guides, directs his people and they follow his presence. He is their guide. He is their shepherd. He shows them the way to go. God doesn't just guide them, but he also makes himself known in verse 13. He meets with the people on Mount Sinai. He speaks to them. He gives them laws and rules and commandments in order to protect the people, in order that the nation of Israel might grow into this mighty nation. He's not just, again, he's not a distant God, but he's one who wants to speak to his people. And in verse 14, part of the commandment that he gives to his people is for them to take a Sabbath day to rest. Isn't God good? 
He gives us six days to work, and then he says, I'm such a good God, I'm going to give you a day to rest. I will provide for you. I will look after you. You don't need to work relentlessly. You're human beings. I know you need to sleep. I know you need to rest. I give you a day in order for you to rest, and I will provide. In verse 15, God provides by giving bread. Manna from heaven falls from the sky in the middle of the wilderness, and he gives water to quench their thirst. The people of Israel never go hungry and never go thirsty because God gives them what they need. Even on the Sabbath day, when they rest and they don't go into the wilderness to collect food, God makes sure they have enough from the previous day in order that they might be fed well. Finally, he tells the Israelites to go into and possess the promised land. He fulfills the promise that he made to Abraham and they go into a land that is described as a land flowing with milk and honey. If you ever doubt God's goodness and faithfulness to his people, then don't anymore. Do not anymore. God creates, he preserves, he chooses, he promises He keeps his promises. He sees people in their affliction. He hears people's cries for help. He defeats our enemies. He rescues his people. He speaks to us. He reveals himself to us. He gives us rest. He feeds us. He gives us drink. And he leads us ultimately into the promised land, which for us as Christians is the eternal new heavens and the new earth. God is faithful to his people. Some of us need to remember this morning the faithfulness of God. We need to stop grumbling and moaning at our lack and the things that are annoying us and the the suffering that we are going through. And instead, we need to meditate on all of God's blessings, all of God's goodness, all of God's faithfulness. You know, I think Christians tend to tend wrongly to fall into this category. We think much of the two or three crosses that God has given us to bear. We think often about the hard things in life and we focus our mind on those two to three things, those two to three crosses that we have to bear at the expense of remembering the hundreds of blessings that God has poured into our lives. I wonder whether you can relate to that and whether God's just convicting you today. Do you spend more time thinking about the hundreds of blessings or the two or three things which are hard and difficult. Where, you know, it's not wrong to pray about the things that are difficult, but it is wrong to neglect the wonderful blessings that God has poured upon us. He created you. He preserves you. He sustains you. He's given you what you need. He leads you. He guides you. He is your shepherd. We have a wonderful, wonderful Father in heaven who is faithful to his people. Don't ever forget it always remember it. How do the Israelites respond to such abundant kindness from God? Well, the answer is in verses 16 and 17. And my second point this morning, let's observe the Israelites' sinfulness. You'll see that their sin in verses 16 and 17 takes several different forms. The first way their sin is described is acting presumptuously. They have a proud assumption that it's okay to do something when it's not actually okay to do something. 
I wonder whether you can relate to that in your own life. I wonder whether you can relate to that when you think about the world and the way people just act, the way they think it's okay to act without even going to God and asking him what's right and what's good. They just go, no, I'm just going to do it because I think it's right. They They act presumptuously in their actions and in doing so do things that are not right. So they act presumptuously. That's part of sin. Presuming things are okay. Either not even going to God and seeking what his will for your life is or simply going, well, I know that God says this, but I'm presuming that actually it's okay for me to do whatever I want. The Israelites not only act presumptuously, they also stiffen their necks. They will not accept God's guidance, but they are stubborn. Imagine a horse, and you're riding a horse, and you're trying to direct the horse right, and the horse stubbornly stiffens its neck and says, no, I'm going straight on. I will not go to the left or the right, whichever way the rider directs. No, I'm going to go the way that I want to go. Or imagine a farmer and an ox. And, and the, uh, In the Old Testament times, you know, we have tractors and harvesters and these most things. But back in the day, they used to have a, an ox that would like drag the plows, the plow the field, and the farmer used to use a yoke or use a, use a way of directing it different ways. And a stubborn ox would say, no, I'm not going the way the farmer wants me to go, I'm going my own way. Well, this is what the Israelites are doing. I'm not going to go the way that God wants me to go, I'm going to stiffen my neck and go the way I want to go. They are stubborn, and in their stubbornness they sin against God. This is summed up then as, as they do not obey God's commandments. In fact, it says they refuse to obey. You know, there's an active, I am not going to do that, God. I'm not going to do the thing that you are commanding me to do. I refuse. Sin is described in another way. They are not mindful of the wonders God had performed. So there's active disobedience. There's a stiffening of the neck. There's a saying, I refuse to do what God commands me to do. And there's just a complete... unmindfulness of all the wonders of God. They've got these 19 verbs, or these 19 ways in which God has done amazing things to the nation of Israel and they don't, think about, they don't think about them. They're not mindful of those things. They ignore those things and that is part of their sin as well. It's not just that they're actively disobedient, it's also that they refuse to dwell and worship God for all the ways in which he has been faithful to them. In Nehemiah 9, two particular sins are referenced. In verse 17... There's a reference to Numbers 14, verse 4, where the Israelites appoint a captain to go back to Egypt. So spies go into the promised land and they come back and go, wow, these men are mighty. I don't know whether we can really go and conquer them and enter into the promised land. And so the people go, no, we're not going to do it. We we can't go in. We're going to die if we go into the promised land. No, we should go back to Egypt. We should go back into slavery. Let's appoint a leader and go back where we've come from. They don't trust God to deliver on his promises in that moment. Instead, they trust a feeble human being to lead them back into slavery in Egypt. What a stupid, stupid decision. In verse 18, there's a reference for the time they made a golden calf. Moses goes up the mountain to speak with God and receive the commandments. And at the bottom of the mountain, the the people are melting down gold, putting it into a cast and making a gold ox for them to direct their worship to. Do you see that in both those sins, what the people are doing is replacing God? In the first example, instead of trusting God and going into the promised land, they're they're following a man back into slavery in Egypt. And in the second example, I mean, this just sounds ridiculous when you say it, but we are guilty of the same thing. They replace God with a statue of a golden cow 
Like, how foolish do you have to be to do that? And yet we do it every day. Instead of trusting God and believing in him, we trust in our own strength or we trust in other people. We, go, we ignore God and we go and find other gods to worship and idolise and, wor- and worship with all that we are. We replace God with things. This is what sin is, replacing God with something that is not God, sometimes as foolish and as stupid as a golden calf. And so there's another question. The first question was, how will the people respond to God's faithfulness? The answer is, they sin and disobey. The question is, how will God respond to the people's sinfulness now? Let's have a look at verses 17 to 19 and see that God responds with mercy and grace. Look at the beginning of that verse. But you are a God ready to forgive. I love that phrase. God is ready to forgive. Maybe you're someone who's done some things that you are not proud of in your life. Maybe you're here or you're watching online and you're thinking, God would never love me. I couldn't be accepted in a church. If you're watching online, maybe you think, I, don't, I won't go to church. There's no way I'd ever be accepted in a church because of the things that you have done in your past that you are not proud of. Well, hear this from the Bible, from God's word. God is ready to forgive. God is ready to forgive. Ask him for his mercy today. Christians can be guilty of this as well. We, we do something that we're just so ashamed of and we think, well, God really forgive me. And so we avoid God or we avoid church or we shrink back from following Christ. Remember, God is ready to forgive. Anyone who cries to God for mercy, anyone who believes in Jesus Christ will have their sins forgiven for eternity. Not only is God ready to forgive, but he's described as gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And as a consequence of who he is, of a consequence of his graciousness, as a consequence of his mercy, as a consequence that he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, he does not forsake the Israelite people. Even as they're worshipping a statue of a golden calf, he does not give up on them, but he continues to show them faithfulness. To those who went for him for mercy, he is merciful. And he is with them always. I believe there are people here who need to be reminded of God's readiness to forgive, his graciousness and his mercy and his steadfast love. Maybe you're ashamed of your choices. Maybe you're ashamed about your lack of prayer and worship. Maybe there's a specific sin in your life right now a lie that you've told or a lie that you continue to tell. Maybe you've been watching pornography when you know you shouldn't. Maybe you have spoken a hurtful word to someone and you're ashamed of what you've said and how you've hurt someone. Maybe your neglect of being a part of the church and serving and being involved in the community of believers. Or maybe you've just failed to care for others and failed to show kindness to others. You're ashamed of what you've done and you ignore God. But remember, when you come to God asking for mercy, you will not be turned away. You will not be turned away. He's ready to forgive. He's gracious. 
He's merciful. He runs to us with open arms. Remember the story, the parable that Jesus tells of the prodigal son who goes, he, ta- he says to his father, give me my inheritance now. And he takes his inheritance in money. He goes away and he parties hard and he lives life and he ignores his father completely. And then he, he runs out of money and he, he becomes a servant and he looks after pigs and he becomes so hungry and desperate that he wants to eat even what the pigs are having. And so in his desperation, he thinks, well, at least my servant, my father's servants are looked after. I'll go back home and my father will, I'll be a servant and at least then I'll have enough food to eat. And so he turns and he comes back to the father and the father sees him far off and he runs to him with his arms open wide and receives him with joy. This is the God whom we believe is. This is the God whom we proclaim. Not a God who is not ready to forgive, but a God who is looking and watching out for all who would return to him. And when they come, he runs with open, wide arms to forgive all who come and ask for mercy. And this is the pattern of Israelite history. God is faithful. Humans are uh, are sinful and rebellious. God makes a way for forgiveness to be possible. In verses 22 to 25, God is faithful. It says in verse 25, the people delighted themselves in your great goodness. You know, they're living in the promised land and they're delighting themselves with the great goodness of God as God pours out his faithfulness upon them. But then in verse 26, they're disobedient again and they rebel. And God in verse 27 does bring discipline upon them. He reveals their sinfulness by raising up Um, enemies, hands them over to enemies, but he is also merciful in verse 27 and forgives them for what they've done. It says, according to your great mercies, uh, it says, according to your great mercies, you gave saviours who saved them from their hand. He's talking about the judges in that section. God raised up judges, um, kind of mini saviours who rescued the people of Israel. And of course, every mini saviour that was raised up, every judge that was raised up, was ultimately a foreshadowing of the great saviour who was to come in Jesus Christ. They weren't really the saviour, it was Christ who was the saviour. But their lives and their way they rescued Israel points to what Christ would do in the future. In verse 28, the Israelites are shown the faithfulness of God once again. They're given rest, but they do evil. Again, in verse 29, God says, you, God warns them. He says, you've acted presumptuously. You did not obey. You stiffened your necks. And then in verse 31, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Do you see over and over and over again, God faithful, here's some rest. I love you. I care for you. I'm going to give you everything you need. The people rebel and stiffen their necks and act presumptuously and do not, are not mindful of all the ways God has provided for them. And so God disciplines them by handing them over to enemies. But then in his mercy, he raises up a savior and brings them back into the place that they need to be. And then the whole cycle starts again. Faithfulness, sin, mercy. Faithfulness, sin, mercy. If you think about your own life, you will recognize the same pattern in your own life. God has been faithful. You have rebelled, but God has shown mercy. And it's not just Israel. This is the story of the whole world. Every single human being in history has been created by God, has been preserved by God, has been provided for by God, but people sin stubbornly. And yet God, in his 
readiness to forgive, in his grace, in his mercy, in his steadfast love, offers a way of forgiveness. And let me emphasise this again. This is the story of your life. God knit you together in your mother's womb. He fed you. He gave you life. He preserved you. Yet you have sinned. But there is a way of forgiveness. And so as I draw to a close, I want to preach to you and proclaim to you the way of forgiveness, which is Jesus Christ. He is called Saviour. Not just one of the little saviours in the book of Judges, but he is the great saviour. The one who saves all who puts their faith in him. And the reason he is called saviour is because he came to earth with a mission. He was born in human flesh. He is God, and yet he was born in human flesh. He came to earth with a mission. And his mission was this, to live a righteous life, to declare the truths of God, and yet ultimately his mission was to die. He died on the cross, not for his own sin, for he committed no sin. He never did anything wrong. He was always good and kind and compassionate in everything he did. So he didn't die for his own sin. No, he died for the sins of the world. He carried our wrongdoings upon himself and he died as a punishment for the things that you and me have done wrong. He carried those things. He bore the punishment in order that everyone who believes in Christ would receive mercy and forgiveness for the things that they had done wrong. There is a way of forgiveness, and it's a way open to everyone. John 3.16 says, Whoever, whomsoever believes in Christ, shall not perish, but will have eternal life. And so this is a way of forgiveness open to all who would believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in Jesus. Believe in his life and his death and his resurrection from the dead. For he did not remain in the grave, but he rose in power, and then he ascended into heaven where he reigns forever and ever. Believe in Christ, and you will be forgiven. You will receive the forgiveness from God, for he is ready to forgive. He showed you that he's ready to forgive in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you are not yet a Christian, I want you to know that God is slow to anger, which means he's waiting He's waiting for you to repent. He's waiting for people to turn and believe in Christ. That's why the end of the world hasn't come yet, because God is still waiting for more people to come into the kingdom to believe in Christ and receive the forgiveness that Christ offers. So he's waiting. He's waiting patiently. He is slow to anger, but he does not leave sin unpunished. There will come a moment where the wait is over, where Christ returns, or you die. Your life ends. And you will be judged for your sins. You will suffer punishment for the things that you have done wrong unless you have believed in Christ and received the forgiveness that is in offer in Jesus. And so I say to you, if you're not a Christian, do not tarry. Do not wait. Don't wait for tomorrow. Don't wait for next week. Don't wait for next month. But today, say, I want to receive this forgiveness that is spoken of. I have done things wrong. God has given me great gifts, but I have rebelled. I need the mercy of Christ and believe in Jesus putting your faith in him. If you are a Christian this morning, this is a reminder of the glorious gospel which we believe, the glorious good news that is described in the Bible, the glorious good news that we have received through Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you, be mindful of God's faithfulness to you in your life. 
I find that challenging, that I suffer sometimes from a lack of mindfulness at all the ways God has blessed me. And so I want to challenge you if you're a Christian. Or Nehemiah 9 wants to challenge you. God wants to challenge you through the scripture. Be mindful of the abundant blessings that you have received in God, of his faithfulness to you. I believe also there's a response this morning that we need to confess sin and stubbornness. Maybe you need to reflect actually in this moment. How have I been stubborn and refused to obey the will of God? And what, what, where have I stiffened my neck? Where am I sinning? Where am I failing to obey the commands of God? Confess those things. And then receive the mercy of Christ once again. God is ready to forgive you for those things. And that's really where we, what, we're, what we're celebrating today. The forgiveness of God in Christ. His readiness to forgive. His steadfast love. His grace and his mercy. Let's be mindful of his faithfulness. Let's confess our sin and let's rejoice at the wonderful mercy we have received in Christ. I want to bring one final application very quickly as I finish. One application to consider. When you tell your story, when you give your testimony, is it a story of God's faithfulness, your sin and God's overwhelming grace and mercy in your life? Because I think it should be. Sometimes when Christians share their testimony, they can overemphasize on themselves. And they can go, oh, I did this, oh, I experienced this, and I, and I made a choice, and it was brilliant. And you know, you, you, when I hear those testimonies, I rejoice, because I know that behind what they're sharing, God has done a great work in their life, and it's wonderful. But I want to encourage you, when you share your story with others, major on God, major on his faithfulness to you major on the way he's blessed you abundantly and when you speak about yourself speak about speak in a humble way about the way you've fallen short of what god commands you to do despite his goodness to you you've fallen short and then you can go but in jesus i have a savior who has rescued me from the things i've done wrong into glorious life and do you see how that story is still about you and your life but it is more glorifying to God because it emphasises how faithful he is. It emphasises how good he is in forgiving sin. And really, your role in the story, you know, I've, I used to go to church with a guy in Watford who used to say this every time he prayed. It got a bit repetitive, but every time he prayed, he used to say, the only thing I brought to my salvation was my sin. God, you brought everything else to salvation. You brought grace. You brought mercy. You reached down and lifted me up. I just brought my sin and my mess and all the things I'd done wrong. But you, Lord, were so good. You brought all the goodness. And I think that is such a healthy way of thinking about the way God has saved us and a healthy way of sharing our testimony with others. God has been faithful. I've messed up. God has forgiven me in Christ. Let's pray together, and then Joyce is going to come up and lead us in a song. So, yeah, band, come up. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this history of the nation of Israel. You were so faithful to that nation. You did so much for them. You chose them. You called them out. You gave them a new name. You blessed them. You provided for, you, for them. You led them. You fed them. You gave them drink. You led them into the promised land. 
And yet they rebelled, they stiffened their necks, they acted presumptuously. But you, Lord, are gracious and merciful. You did not forsake them. You forgave them their sin. All who called upon you for mercy received your forgiveness. And yet they did the same thing again. You were faithful, they were sinful, and you were gracious and merciful. And then they did it again and again and again. And Lord, actually, all of history in this world has been the same story of you being good, you providing, you creating, you sustaining, you preserving, and human beings rebelling and disobeying. And so, Lord, we want to confess that today. We're part of that. We want to say, Lord, we have sinned. We have stiffened our necks. We have not been mindful of your wonders and your blessings and your gifts. Lord, would you forgive us? Thank you for the death of Christ. Thank you that you are always ready to forgive. And we come to you now asking for mercy. I pray Christians would come again into your presence asking for mercy to the foot of cross. Lord, I pray there'd be non-Christians now coming for the very first time and asking for mercy and saying, Lord, forgive me. Let me receive this forgiveness which has been spoken of. And Lord, thank you that you are ready to forgive, gracious and merciful. Jesus, we thank you for your death on the cross, your resurrection from the dead, and the life everlasting available to all who receive this forgiveness that we have spoken about today. Lord, we love you and we bless you.